Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to our online service. Whether you are a regular attender or a member of Two Cities, or you were just scrolling on Facebook and saw this link and clicked on it, we are glad you're here. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. And for the last few weeks, we have been in a series on the book of Galatians. Now, one of the themes of the book of Galatians is that Paul is addressing the early church, and he is addressing a lot of disagreement that is going on. Now, if you've been around Christians at all, you can see that Christians tend to disagree on a lot of different things. Christians disagree about baptism. Christians disagree about systems and structures within the church. Christians disagree about, you know, alcohol. Um, Christians will a lot of times disagree about worship music. You know, I know of a church that they have the pastor who preaches on Sundays in the sanctuary and in the sanctuary, they sing traditional hymns and they have a piano and organ and things like that. And then next door in the gym, they broadcast the pastor, but they have a whole worship band and they sing more contemporary music. And the reason they do that is because they cannot agree on what worship music should be like. You know, Christians tend to agree, tend to disagree on what kind of clothes you should wear in church. For example, my grandmother and I disagree on what I should be wearing when I preach. I mean, like, like right now, I think that what I'm wearing right now is appropriate, but my grandmother would say that I need to be wearing something at least a little bit nicer than this. Although she did buy me this shirt for Christmas, and so I'm probably, probably okay today. Um, so during the time that Paul was writing Galatians, there was a lot of disagreement that was going on. And one of the big questions that was being argued during this time was, is there anything that we have to do for salvation other than grace and faith alone? And so today we're going to be taking a break from Galatians and we're going to be reading in Acts chapter 15. Um, so if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab those. So the book of Acts is the story of how a group of mostly unqualified, ordinary people started the largest religious movement in the history of the world. In Acts 15, which is where we're going to be today, is really just a big theology debate. In this chapter, we're going to see that the church is encountering some problems or some disagreements that could have really just derailed the church if it was not addressed. And so the center of this debate is not predestination. It's not, it's not evolution. The center of this debate is not worship styles or gender roles. But the center of this debate is around circumcision, which is a very sensitive topic. Um, so this may seem like a silly topic to us, but during this time period, it was a really big deal. And so this text is going to answer for us some really important questions, such as, is there anything we have to do for salvation on top of grace and faith alone? How do I get along with people in my communion group who have different beliefs than I do? Or how should we handle gray areas? Like, is it okay to drink alcohol? Or what should I do if I don't like our church's worship music? So this text is going to speak into this in a lot of different ways. So let's go ahead and dive in. Verse 1 says this, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so many of the Jews who had become Christians, they were going around saying, hey, if you, become a, if you want to become a Christian, you have to be circumcised. You have to start following the Mosaic law. Verse two. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. 
So here's what's happened here. So in the early church, there were both Jews and Gentiles that were coming to faith in Christ. So Jews, pretty much from the time of the age of accountability, which was usually about age 12, they had been following these laws really strictly. And so if you were a male, you had been circumcised and you were busy following all the ritual laws, you were making sacrifices, you were just keeping all the things that were expected of Jewish people during that day. And if you were a Gentile, then you weren't doing any of those things. You were pretty much just eating whatever you wanted and you were not following the sacrificial laws and you were just sort of having a good time. And during the early church, what was happening is that Peter and Paul and the apostles, they were going around and they were preaching the gospel and both Jews and Gentiles were getting saved. But what was happening is the Gentiles were getting saved, but they were not starting to follow the Jewish law. And this was really starting to irritate the Jews because the idea that you could just believe in in Jesus Christ and be saved from your sins and not have to follow the normal Jewish laws, that was just a foreign idea to them. And they were starting to feel really bitter, really irritated, really jealous when they were looking at the Gentiles who were sort of getting to skip these steps. They were really sort of feeling like someone was sort of skipping them in line. Now, I want you to think about this with me. How does it make you feel when you're standing in line for something and someone passes you? Now, I know, like, you don't like it. Uh, My best friend, his name is Matt, and we went to middle school, high school, college together. And Matt is just a super calm guy. I mean, he is just steady. It takes a lot to get Matt riled up about really pretty much anything. Um, You know how you'll be at a sporting event and people will be yelling at the referees and umpires and just be really loud and impulsive. My friend Matt is the opposite of that kind of person. And one thing that I realized in high school is that there was one thing that really got under Matt's skin more than anything else. And that is if people passed us in line. And so we were standing in the lunch line in 10th in grade. And one week, for whatever reason, there was a group of guys who passed us in the lunch line a couple days in a row. After the first day, it really made Matt irritated. And then after about the third day, Matt confronted these guys and he was this close to getting in a fight with these guys over being passed in the lunch line, right? We do not like being passed in the line. And this is very, very similar to how the Jews were feeling during this time. And so verses one and verse two are setting the stage for the debate. And so the focal point of this debate is is circumcision, but the main issue that's gonna be debated here in the first part of this chapter is how do you become a Christian? So let's look to verse six. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. 
So Peter, he has two main arguments here. The first argument is a reference back to Acts 10. So if you look to Acts 10, you'll read the story of Cornelius and his conversion. So Cornelius was a Gentile and the Bible tells us that he was an Italian general. So he was a pretty important guy um, in that time. And what the Bible tells us is that Peter goes into Cornelius's house and he shares the gospel with him. And after he shares the gospel, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit falls and that Cornelius and his house were both saved. And so what Peter is saying in this passage is he's saying, you know, when I was back in Cornelius's house, did I go up to Cornelius and say, hey man, like here's what I need you to do if, if you wanna become a Christian. You need to first be circumcised and then you need to go take that bacon off the stove and you need to stop eating your steaks medium rare. And then, and only then, if you do those things, then you can become a Christian. Peter in this passage is saying, no, 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 no. When I went back into Cornelius's house, all that I did was preach the gospel and Cornelius believed and by faith in who Jesus was, Cornelius was saved. And so this is Peter's first argument that you do not have to follow the rituals to be saved. And then Peter's second argument is here in verse 10. He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So what Peter's saying to the Jews is one, he says, you have not been able to keep this law. Your fathers have not been able to keep this law. And then he says, are we really gonna ask the Gentiles to do what we ourselves have been unable to do? And the big idea here is that you cannot be saved by keeping God's law. You cannot be saved by keeping God's law. This is such a core biblical truth that you just have to understand. And that is that the Mosaic law, both the ritual laws and the moral laws, they were given to us not so that in them we would be saved, but that through them we would see that there is no salvation. I'm gonna read that again because it's important. The reason we have the Mosaic law, both the moral laws and the ritual laws is not so that we might be saved through them, but rather that we would realize that in them there is no salvation. So recently I spent a lot of time with Billy Vale, who is a member of our church. He and his wife, Susie. Uh, Billy and I went to India together along with a handful of others on a mission trip. And when we were in India, Billy was, Billy was telling us the story of how he came to Christ in college. So Billy became a Christian around 20 years ago at the Citadel, which is a college in South Carolina. And Billy was telling us that um, he didn't become a Christian until his junior year. And before he became a Christian, he would go to church with his soon, which is eventual wife, Susie. He would go to church with Susie and her family. And when he would go, he would just be really bored. He said, sometimes he would sleep. Sometimes he would color, you know, he would sometimes um, read on the back wall, the 10 commandments. So the church that he went to had the 10 commandments on the back wall. And Billy said that he sort of made a game out of it. Whenever he was there, he would just read through the 10 commandments and try to memorize them. And Billy said that one day he was, or one Sunday, he was trying to memorize the 10 commandments when all of a sudden he just felt really guilty. And after that service, he went up to Susie and he said, he said, Susie, we're all hypocrites. Like, ha have you read those 10 commandments? We don't do any of these. Like we, we fail in all of these areas. And so Billy said, he said, what I tried to do for a week is I tried to follow all the 10 commandments perfectly. And I failed miserably. I failed in all of these different ways. And what this shows, this, this story about Billy, what it illustrates is something that you know deep down. And that is that you are terrible at being good. You and I are terrible at being good. I think that most 
people, even, even people in the secular community, would agree that the Ten Commandments are pretty much basic ethics. Even people who don't believe in the Bible, who don't believe in God, would say that almost everything in the Ten Commandments is pretty reasonable. Um, one of the pastors that I, that I really enjoy listening to, um, he likes to walk his congregation through what he calls the Ten Commandment pop quiz. Now, unfortunately, most of you aren't in this room with me, so I can't call on anybody, but we're going to go through the quiz real quick. So the first one is, do you love things more than you love God? Yes, you, you, you do. There are things and times when you love things more than you love God. Do you ever take the name of the Lord or take the Lord's name in vain? You know, I grew up hearing that that was all about cussing, but it actually is more than that. It really means to take the name of God lightly or to be indifferent towards God. And the answer to that is, is yes, you do. Are you guilty of not resting on Sundays or not taking a Sabbath? Of course. Are you guilty of disrespecting your parents? At some point, yeah. Have you ever taken anything that is not rightfully yours? I'm sure that we all have. Do you lie? Now, I know you don't think you're a liar, but you just lie sometimes. I mean, that's, that's just the reality. You, you just lie sometimes, which actually sort of makes you a liar. Do you get frustrated when good things happen to people when you don't think they deserve it? Or do you find yourself desiring someone's, someone else's house or someone else's car, someone else's kids, someone else's jobs? That's called coveting. And we're definitely all guilty of that. You may have not committed adultery, but Jesus says that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery in your heart. And you may say, well, you know, I may be guilty of all those other things, but I'm at least make a 10% because I haven't killed anybody. Well, the Bible says in 1 John, it says that if you have hate in your heart towards your brother, you're guilty of murder. And so the point of all this is that you make a zero. You make a zero on this quiz. You are gonna over and over and over again fail this. And God is not going to give you a participation trophy for it. He's not going to let you take this quiz again next week with open notes this time. You are going to fail it over and over. And the Ten Commandments were not given to you because you would be able to obey them, but to show you that at the most basic level, you would never be able to. And so Peter argues, one, you do not have to keep the rituals to be saved. And two, you cannot be saved by keeping God's law, which leads me to verse 11 where he says how we are saved. Verse 11 says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So Peter is saying, you are not saved by rituals. You are saved by grace. Galatians 2.16 says, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 5.6 says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And so Peter's big message here is you are saved by grace through faith in what Christ has done. Christ is the only one who has kept the law perfectly. He is the only one who's been able to take that quiz and make a hundred. And it is only by grace through faith in Christ and his righteousness that you can become a Christian. You do not become a Christian by living a you know, certain life or by dressing a certain way or talking a certain way. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And a helpful question to consider here is, do you sometimes act like in order for someone to be a Christian, they need to have faith and something else? Maybe you feel like in order to be a Christian, you need to have faith and dress differently in church. Or maybe it's you need to have faith and talk a certain way. Or maybe it's you need to have faith and homeschool or private school your kids. 
You know, regardless of what it is, many of you need to stop putting unnecessary requirements on other people when it comes to matters like this. So the first issue that was addressed was how do you become a Christian? And then the second issue that we're gonna discuss is how are we supposed to fellowship with those who are different from us? So let's look to verse 12. Verse 12 says, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, he replied, brothers, listen to me. Down to verse 19, James says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Or the NIV version says, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, the big idea here is very clear. And that is that we should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. Now, there are so many implications to this, but first I wanna clarify. Should we, as a church, dull our convictions or soften our stances on matters of biblical truth so that, we, so that we will be more appealing to the culture? No, like we as a church will never soften our stances on matters of biblical truth ever. But should we as a church, you know, be sensitive to new believers? Should we try to remove obstacles that may, make, that may be making it difficult for seekers who are turning to God? Of course, we, we definitely should do this. For example, we, don't, we do not want to make it difficult for guests who are coming to our church. We don't, we, we don't want to make it difficult for them by having nowhere for them to sit. That's why when we're gathering as a church, we ask people who are regular attenders and members to sit in the VHQ venue. We don't want to make it difficult for people to get connected to our church by making it really difficult to get into a weekender. That's why we have a weekender once every two months or so. That's why we make new community groups for new people. When Pastor Kyle or Pastor Caleb or myself get up here, we don't want to make it difficult for people who are not Christians by constantly speaking in really complicated Christian terms or by constantly using Christian examples or by speaking in Christianese, as, I'm heard, as I've heard, I'm sure you've heard it called. We are and we will continue to be a mission-minded church. And what this means for you is that you should prioritize mission over tradition. You should prioritize mission over tradition. Now, in a lot of ways, I'm all about tradition. I mean, I really love me some tradition. So I grew up in a Southern Baptist church of around a hundred people. And so I grew up singing hymns and, and I love hymns. Like I really love hymns. Olivia gives me a hard time about it because I pull up videos that were made in the nineties on YouTube and they're, they're on YouTube now of just people singing these old hymns. Like I really love hymns. I love potlucks on Sunday afternoon after the service, you know, at, at 11 o'clock in the morning. You know, I love showing up to a potluck and there's 17 different casseroles and there's three different kinds of deviled eggs. And you know, somebody's made a really nice coconut cake. Uh, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but I love tradition. Tradition can be a good thing. But where churches sometimes tend to go wrong, and I'm not speaking about any church in particular, is that they prioritize tradition over mission. Some churches would rather continue in their old traditions despite the fact that they can see that they are not, that they are not reaching the next generation. Two Cities Church will always be a church that prioritizes mission over tradition. The mission of Two Cities Church is for every man, woman, and child to have repeated opportunities to hear the gospel and respond. Now, how we accomplish that mission is probably gonna change over the years. The way that we are going about that mission now 
might look significantly different in 10 years and it's surely gonna look different in 30 years. But the reason that we do all these things is all for the sake of mission. Let's go to verse 20. He says that we should write to the Gentiles to tell them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So, and then they sent Judas, not, not the one who portrayed Jesus, but the other one to the Gentiles with the letter. And he says this in the letter. He says, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you, the Gentiles, no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they, the Gentiles, had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So what we see here is that the elders are writing this letter to the Gentiles and they're basically saying, hey, good news, you guys, you don't have to completely follow all the Jewish law to be a Christian. So you don't have to be circumcised. But what they're saying is, hey, in view of sort of the Jews' religious background, what you need to do is you need to be sensitive to them. And so there are certain things that you need to avoid. And so we see that the Gentiles, when they are told that, um, that for the most part, that they didn't have to follow the Jewish law, they rejoiced and they were encouraged. And a couple things that have already been communicated here. The first is what we've already covered is that to the Jews, he instructed them to be inclusive. Do not add man-made rules to the faith of non-Jewish people. And then the second thing that's being communicated here is to the converts, to the Gentiles, He's encouraging them to be sensitive, be sensitive to the religious background of the Jews. So when I was in India um, not long ago, I spent a lot of time with a friend of mine who I was actually friends with in college, and he's actually a missionary there um, now in Mumbai. And he was telling me that he has a friend um, who grew up Hindu, um, who does not think it's okay to eat pork. So pretty much Hindu, anyone with a Hindu background, um, or any Hindu really, or most of them, um, they, they won't eat meat of any kind. And so my friend has talked to this guy and he said, hey, you know, I know you're a Christian now from a biblical standpoint, it's okay for you to eat pork. It's, it's totally fine. But his friend, for whatever reason, he, he just won't listen. He, and it, it really bothers his friend if someone around him eats pork. And so my friend has decided, you know, just in view of my relationship with this guy, I'm just going to not eat pork around him. And so they've just sort of made an agreement that he's not gonna eat pork around his friend because he doesn't want it to disrupt the fellowship that he has with him. Um, and this is how we should be. And this is what James is telling the Gentiles. He's telling the Gentiles to abstain from these things because if they don't abstain from these things, then it's gonna make it really difficult for them to have communion with the Jews. He's, them, he's encouraging them to be sensitive when it comes to matters of disagreement. So during the time that Acts 15 was written, people couldn't disagree on the circumcision debate. But today, you know, there are a lot of things that we tend to disagree on today. Um, one of those things is alcohol. The question is, well, how, how should Christians handle alcohol or should a Christian drink alcohol? Now, there are multiple sides of this debate. Um, the one side is the teetotaler argument. And I respect a lot of pastors and I look up to a lot of pastors who hold to this argument. And basically what this argument says is that in view of how destructive alcohol can be and in view of how me drinking alcohol affects other people, 
I'm just going to avoid alcohol, to, alcohol altogether. And to be honest, the Bible does say some negative things about alcohol, especially drunkenness. And in 2018, an estimated 88,000 people in the U.S. died alcohol-related deaths. Alcohol was the third leading preventable cause of death behind one, tobacco, and two, physical inactivity and unhealthy eating. And studies do show that one in six people who drink alcohol have a serious problem with it. And so some will say, you know, in view of all this, in view of how destructive alcohol can be, I'm just not going to touch it. And I would say, if that is you, then praise God that you are being so cautious. Praise God that you are being so considerate of other people. And then the other side of this argument is, well, just because something is abused, does that mean that we should outlaw it entirely? I mean, food is abused, but do we stop eating? You know, words are abused. Do we stop talking? Guns are abused. So should we ban guns? Sex is abused, but should we get rid of that? And the argument says, well, yes, we also do see in the Bible, you know, people drinking wine. You know, we see that Jesus himself is drinking alcohol. And the point of all this is that in most cases, what you should do is you should follow your conscience and you should be sensitive. So if your mother-in-law gets really upset at the idea of you drinking, then maybe it's a good idea for you to not have a beer at the Thanksgiving table if it's going to ruin her Thanksgiving. And so some of you really need to just lay down your rights in order to be sensitive. Some people also have the conviction that there are certain places and there are certain settings where it's not appropriate for them to drink. And I think this is a very reasonable stance too, because the Bible also makes it clear that if something that you eat or drink causes someone else to stumble, then that's your responsibility. And then one last thing I'll say about this is that some of you, because of your past or your addictive personality or your, your past experience with alcohol, some of you should never touch it. Do you have the freedom to drink alcohol? Sure. But can freedom sometimes be used foolishly? Absolutely. And so for some of you, you should absolutely never touch it. And it would be very unwise of you to do so. Maybe it's with worship music. You know, some people, you know, with a church our size, I'm sure that some of you think that our worship is just over the top. You know, you come here and you do not like it when people raise their hands you know, you think our drums are too loud. You know, you think that we sing too many songs. You, you don't like that we lower our lights during worship. And then there's, there's some of you who, who think that we don't sing enough songs. Some of you want us to have fog machines. And some of you don't think that we're spirit-filled enough. You know, the point of all this, and a big theme of this passage, is that despite your Christian freedom in many of these things, you are often called to lay down your preferences for the sake of unity. Lay down your preferences for the sake of unity. Jesus himself set the perfect example in this. Did Jesus have the freedom to leave us in our sin and separated from God forever? He absolutely did. Jesus voluntarily went to the cross. Nobody forced Jesus to go to the cross. He did it voluntarily. What Jesus did is he laid down his freedom and he went to the cross and he took upon himself the full wrath of God for the sake of unity. He did this so that we could be united with him forever. Was Jesus inclusive? Yes, absolutely. Jesus said in John 6, 37, he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so whether you are black or white, whether you are rich or poor, whether you grew up in church or didn't grow up in church, whether you're college educated or not, the good news for you and the good news of the gospel is that there is now no distinction. 
It says in Romans 10, 12, it says, there is no distinction for the Jew or the Greek, Gentile, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's good news for whoever will place genuine faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so may we be a church that does not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. May we be a church that prioritizes mission over tradition. And may we be a church that lays down our preferences for the sake of unity and for the sake of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that you have, um, have made salvation free to anyone who has faith in you. Lord, I thank you that we do not have to clean ourselves up before coming to you, that we can just come. And as we come, you will then clean us up. Lord, you know, as a church, I pray that you would just enable us to keep faithfulness to you and to keep mission at the forefront of our minds in everything that we do. Lord, I thank you that you first loved us even when we were your enemies. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.